Good morning, Grace. Hebrews chapter 2, and while you are turning there, I want you to imagine a world, imagine a society in which ugly is not tolerated. Imagine a world, imagine a society where ugly people are not tolerated, even plain-looking people, homely people are not tolerated. Imagine a world, imagine a society where beautiful people are lifted up as the standard for humanity. It sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? It sounds like today. Well, in 1964, Rod Serling predicted that the future would be like this. In an episode of The Twilight Zone titled, Number 12 Looks Just Like You, Rod Serling predicted that our world, our society, would be like this in the year 2000. Here's his opening monologue to said episode. Given the chance, what young girl wouldn't happily exchange a plain face for a lovely one? What girl could refuse the opportunity to be beautiful? For want of a better estimate, let's call it the year 2000. At any rate, imagine a time in the future when science has developed a means of giving everyone the face and body he dreams of. It may not happen tomorrow, but it happens now in the twilight zone. In the episode, number 12 looks just like you. There is this future society in which all people have to undergo this procedure called the transformation. This society will not tolerate ugly people, or even normal, average, plain-looking people. So every person in this society must undergo the transformation, a procedure where you are completely changed from head to toe to look like another person, a very beautiful person or handsome person. You actually get to pick which beautiful person you want to look like. And so you end up looking exactly like millions of other people, but you're beautiful. But there's this 18-year-old girl living in the society named Marilyn who is plain looking. She's homely, and she knows it, and she wants to stay that way. She doesn't want to look like anybody else, but she's being pressured by her mother to choose a new look. And so she is offered two choices, number eight or number 12. Her mom is a number 12. And so is their maid, and so are the nurses in the hospital. But her best friend, Valerie, her best friend, Val, is a number eight. So Marilyn is surrounded by all of these women and all of these men that look the same, and she just wants to be left alone. She just wants to be herself. Her mom wants her to be a number 12, but Marilyn doesn't want the transformation. So her mom reasons that she must not be feeling well, and then her mom tells her that she needs a glass of instant smile. Apparently, in this future, they have this product called instant smile, this drink that when you drink it, it makes you smile, and it cheers you up no matter what's going on in your life. So her mom keeps trying to convince Marilyn to have the transformation, to pick number eight or number 12, And then eventually her uncle shows up to try to convince her to have the procedure, to undergo the transformation. And she tells her uncle this, I don't want to be transformed. I want to stay ugly. Being the same as everybody, isn't that the same as being a nobody? And then her uncle says, you know what I think? You don't feel very well. What you need is a nice cup of instant smile. And Marilyn replies, I had a cup of instant smile. I don't feel like smiling all the time. Sometimes I want to cry 
or frown. And then she meets up with her best friend Val, who's a number eight. Val also tries to convince Marilyn to undergo the transformation. But Marilyn tells her this, I don't want to look like everyone else. I want to look like me. I won't let them change me. I won't let them change me. When everyone is beautiful, no one will be because without ugliness, there can be no beauty. They don't care if you're beautiful or not. They just want everyone to be the same. But in the end, Marilyn does not succeed. She is eventually forced to have the operation, to undergo the transformation. And when she finally sees herself in the mirror, that she's a number eight, that she is now beautiful, now she is so excited because she has been transformed into what society wants. And as Marilyn stares into the mirror, she is surrounded by her mother and her uncle and her best friend Val. And then she turns around and she exclaims, and the nicest part of all, Val, I look just like you. Rod Serling's closing words, portrait of a young lady in love with herself. Improbable, perhaps, but in an age of plastic surgery, bodybuilding, and an infinity of cosmetics, let us hesitate to say impossible. These and other strange blessings may be waiting in the future, which after all is the twilight zone. Well, these things don't just happen in the twilight zone. They happen in the church too. Throughout church history, even to this day, people have been pushing for the transformation, the transformation of Jesus. Throughout church uh, history, people have been trying to change Jesus. And we all do this on some levels, of course, because we all want to paint Jesus the way that we want him to be. That's how God's law exposes us. We would all love to fashion Jesus and make him in a way that we're comfortable with him. So we all do it to some extent. But today I want to talk about how people try to change Jesus how people try to explain his incarnation in ways that don't jive with the Bible. And what the preacher of Hebrews will tell us today is this. Jesus looks just like you. Jesus looked just like you when he was on the earth. And Jesus looks just like you right now. He looks just like you. Of course, that doesn't mean he looks exactly like you. This is not the twilight zone. But Jesus looks just like you. He's a human being just like you. Right now, Jesus sits bodily at the right hand of God the Father. And he has a body, a resurrected body, a glorified body that is very much human. And he has a spleen right now. Jesus has a spleen right now. So one of the most theological things that you can say about Jesus is that he has a spleen. And he has toenails right now. And he has hair right now. And I'm sure he doesn't have a man bun either. (laughs) And probably not any hipster haircut. No offense, hipsters, but I'm a child of the 80s and I picture Jesus with long hair kind of like John Bon Jovi. I could be wrong, but I've got every children's Bible to back me up here. I've yet to see, I have yet to see a children's Bible that has Jesus with a hipster haircut. But make no mistake about it. Jesus had hair when he was on the earth, 
and he has hair right now, real human hair, and that's good news. And here's why that's good news. And I'll let Gregory of Nazianzus explain it to y'all. Gregory of Nazianzus, born in 329 AD, died in 390 AD. He was a theologian, one of the Cappadocian fathers, and he said this about the incarnation of Jesus in his work titled Epistle 101. He said this, For that which he has taken up, for that which he, he has not taken up, he has not saved. Now, what does Gregory of Nazianzus mean when he says, for that which Jesus has not taken up, he has not saved? Gregory of Nazianzus means that if Jesus did not become like us in every way except for sin, then he could not save us. In other words, if Jesus did not have hair, then he could not save us. If Jesus did not become a human being just like us with everything that a human being has then we cannot be saved. So yes, it's good news that Jesus has hair. And the preacher of Hebrews agrees with me. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he's telling us that Jesus looks like us, that Jesus is a human being just like us. And so what does he mean when he says he himself likewise partook of the same things? And what do we mean when we say that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh? That What do we mean when we say that he was made up of bones and muscles and tissue and blood and a spleen and hair and fingernails and toes and ears and a tongue and teeth? What do we mean when we say that Jesus shared in flesh and blood? What does the word flesh mean? Does it mean fully and completely human? Or does it mean merely human with just flesh and bone and blood and nose and elbows and feet? Or does flesh mean like the apostles John and Paul when they use flesh in their writings to describe sin, the sinful nature, that aspect of humanity that is in rebellion and opposition to God? What do we mean when we say that Jesus became flesh? Blood, we understand, but flesh can have several meanings in Scripture. When we say that Jesus took on human flesh, when he shared in our flesh and partook of the same things as us, we do not mean that he had a sinful nature like us fallen human beings. Let me say that again. It's very important to understand. When we say that Jesus took on human flesh, shared in our flesh, partook of the same things, we do not mean that he had a fallen sinful nature like us fallen human beings. Now, sometimes the apostles John and Paul use the word flesh this way in their writings to refer to our sinful nature. For instance, in Romans chapter 8, verses 7-8, Paul says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
And then John says in 1 John 2, 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. In these verses, the Greek word is sarx. The word flesh refers to our sin nature, that aspect of humanity that is in rebellion against God. But when the preacher of Hebrews uses the word flesh in Hebrews 2.14, he does not mean that Jesus had a sinful nature. He means that Jesus shared in our humanity, meaning he was exactly like us in every way. He was exactly like every human being born in this world, except Jesus never sinned. He means that Jesus looked like us, and that he had a human body with all that that entails, and that Jesus had a spirit or a soul. See, the difference between Jesus and every other human being ever created is that Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. Now, you may be thinking, that's a no-brainer. But you know what? The early church struggled with what it meant that Jesus partook of the same things that he shared in our flesh and blood. There were some extremely gifted and popular preachers and teachers that couldn't come to grips with the humanity of Jesus. So they began to cross the line and teach about the incarnation in a way that did not jive with the Bible. And today we're going to look at one of these Christological heresies. Today we'll examine one of three heresies that arose in the early church as people struggled to understand the incarnation of Jesus. And then next week we'll look at the other two heresies concerning the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I debated about going this route in this passage. But I read two things online this week that made me say, you know what, I need to preach on this again. I'll tell, the, tell you about those two things in a moment. It's good to revisit these Christological heresies because we need to have a correct understanding of what the preacher of Hebrews means in Hebrews 2.14 when he says that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. And it's important because John says in 2 John 1, 7, that if you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, then you're antichrist. In case you did not know, that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing to be called the antichrist. It's a bad thing to be labeled a heretic because of a faulty understanding of the incarnation. It's also important to review these because heresies never go away. They never get creative. They always pop up again in church history. They might change their hairstyle, but heresies always come back around. And I think that Christological heresies are making a comeback. In fact, this week, this is one of the things that convinced me I needed to go this route in these sermons. This week, Ligonier Ministries, the teaching fellowship of R.C. Sproul, I'm sure most of you know who he is. They're having their national conference later on this week. And this is the title and the description of R.C. Sproul's talk at the national uh, conference. He said the title is The Word Made Flesh, The Ligonier Statement on Christology. Here's the description. Ligonier Ministries will unveil a statement on the person and work of Christ, explaining why this is the most pressing issue that the church faces today and in the next generation. So according to them, the most pressing issue facing the church today and future generations is Christology, understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why I want to spend two weeks reviewing for you again 
the three main Christological heresies that popped up throughout church history. We looked at these over three years ago, but I think it's good to be reminded. And Hebrews 2.14 and Hebrews 2.17 talk about the humanity of Jesus, so why not? It's in the text, so let's review some church history, and then at the end of the sermon, we'll have some very practical applications, so stay with me. I love church history. I hope that you learn to love and, and grow in your understanding of church history, because listen, Grace, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Jesus has been building his church for a very long time before any of us ever came on the scene. There are Christians who lived before us, and we can learn from them. I think we get chronological snobbery, where we think we got it all down, and we can't learn anything from these people. Well, you know what? We're a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys, and we need to know our history. And in the fourth century, the church struggled to come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ became a human being. They read Hebrews 2.14, and they wondered, what does this verse really mean? They knew that human beings were dehumanized, that we were broken by sin because of Adam. So they struggled to understand how Jesus could become a human being, because in their eyes, anyone that was a human was broken and dehumanized by sin. They believed Hebrews 2.14, that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood, but they were trying to understand what that word meant, flesh, that he became flesh since every human being that they knew that was made of flesh was a sinner. How could Jesus become a human being since all human beings are sinners? And so in the fourth century, there were several understandings of who Jesus was, just like there are today, and it was dividing the church. Honestly, it was ripping the church apart. And so the church began to address several of these heresies that emerged concerning the humanity of Jesus. We'll look at one today, and Lord willing, two more next week. The one we'll look at today is called Apollinarianism. The first Christological heresy came from a man by the name of Apollinarius, born in 315 A.D., died in 393 A.D. Apollinarius was a bishop. He was a pastor in the city of Laodicea, and he started out theologically conservative, He would be welcome in our midst. He would talk the way we talk, believe what we believe. And he and his father were friends of Athanasius, if you remember him from earlier in our series in Hebrews. When Athanasius came back from one of his exiles, he stayed at the home of Apollinarius. So they were friends. And Apollinarius started out fine. He was theologically conservative. He was against Arianism, just like Athanasius And he defended the Nicene Creed, and he defended and stood up for his friend Athanasius. But Apollinarius had too much zeal, and he ended up overemphasizing the deity of Jesus. He was against Arianism and what the heretic Arius taught. Arius taught that Jesus was the first created being. Arius said Jesus did not exist with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. So Apollinarius was against Arianism. He was denouncing it. Because Arianism denied the eternality of the Son of God. But in his defense of the deity of Jesus, Apollinarius went too far. He began to overemphasize the deity of Jesus to the point that he actually downplayed the humanity of Jesus. He started out fine, but then he began to blur the lines and he actually crossed over the line of orthodoxy. 
His Christological model, or how Apollinarius understood the incarnation of Jesus, is known now as the Logos Sarx model. That's the Greek word, word and flesh. It's the word flesh Christology. Apollinarius argued that Jesus Christ was the word made flesh. He would agree with Hebrews 2.14 that Jesus shared in flesh and blood like us. He would also affirm that Jesus is from the Father. He would affirm that Jesus is of the same essence and nature as God the Father, just like the Council of Nicaea had put forth, which we looked at several months ago when we started the book of Hebrews. He would say Jesus Christ is the word of God. He took on flesh. Apollinarius would have affirmed all of that. But Apollinarius' understanding of Jesus taking on flesh meant just that. He just took on flesh. He just put flesh and blood on like a garment. He just partook of the physical aspect of humanity. He took on the material or the physical aspect of humanity. Apollinarius believed that Jesus had hair, he had toenails, he had teeth, and it sounds good so far, right? But here's where Apollinarius went wrong. He believed that Jesus only took on human flesh, only had eyeballs, only had feet, and only was made up of flesh and blood and bone and muscle and tissue. Apollinarius did not believe that Jesus took on the immaterial aspect of humanity. That is the human spirit or the human soul or the the rational mind. Remember, human beings are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial. The material is our body, flesh and blood, and the immaterial is our spirit or our soul or our heart, whatever word you want to use. We're made up of two parts, material and immaterial, body and spirit. So Apollinarius believed that Jesus took on human flesh, but he did not believe that Jesus took on the immaterial part of humanity, the human spirit. For Apollinarius, Jesus was materially, physically a human being. He had a human body, but Apollinarius said Jesus lacked something. He didn't have a spirit or a soul. Jesus became flesh, Apollinarius said. You could touch him, you could talk to him, you could look at him, but that was all that Apollinarius meant when he said that Jesus became flesh. For Apollinarius, Jesus was just tissue, just muscles. He was just blood vessels, just tendons, just skin, just hair. He was just a human being made up of the physical parts only. According to Apollinarius, one part of Jesus was missing. If if Hebrews 2.17 is true and Jesus as Hebrews 2.17 says, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, then what part of Jesus was missing? Here's what was missing. It was the immaterial part. The human spirit or soul was missing from Jesus, Apollinarius said. Here's how Apollinarius would explain the incarnation. Apollinarius was strong in his understanding of the deity of Christ. He said, yes, Jesus is 100% God. He believed that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the eternal Son of God who had the same essence or nature as God the Father. So we would give Apollinarius an A-plus in his understanding of the deity of Jesus. But we would flunk Apollinarius on his understanding of the humanity of Jesus. Why? Because Apollinarius did not believe that Jesus took on the human spirit or soul as well. He was fully God, Apollinarius said, but half human. 
He lacked the human soul. He was not fully human, just part. Apollinarius would tell you if he were here today, Jesus looks just like you. But then he'd say, but just on the outside. He doesn't have a human soul. Sure, he he looks human, but he's missing some parts, the immaterial parts. Apollinarius believed that Jesus was fully God, but just half human. He was the word become flesh, but not the word become human. He believed that the word, the logos, the, the word of God actually replaced Jesus' spirit, replaced his mind. J. Kelly says this, the presupposition of this argument is that the divine word was substituted for the normal human psychology in Christ. Apollinarius wanted Jesus to undergo a procedure, to undergo the transformation. Apollinarius had what I call the Frankenstein approach. Remove from Jesus that immaterial aspect, his human spirit, and replace it with the logos, or the word, the word of God. So here's Apollinarius in his lab, operating on Jesus as Jesus undergoes the transformation. And if you want these pictures, they'll be on the sermon notes online. See, the word of God, according to Apollinarius, controlled Jesus. It replaced his brain, it replaced his spirit, his soul. And if that's true, then that means that Jesus did not experience any sadness or grief or cry or have any emotion. It means that he was half human. And that's not the biblical portrait of Jesus. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 38? Then he said to them, to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And what does John tell us about Jesus' last moments on the cross in John 19, 30? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, why would Apollinarius believe that Jesus did not have a human spirit or soul? Why did he interpret Hebrews 2 this way? Why would this understanding of Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 17, why would that become satisfying to Apollinarius and his followers? Why would Apollinarius believe that when the preacher of Hebrews says that he himself likewise partook of the same things, then why would Apollinarius understand that to mean that Jesus was fully God but just half human? Well, there are several reasons why. Number one, it's in keeping with the Council of Nicaea that stresses the full deity of Jesus Christ. So Apollinarius is spot on in his understanding that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He seriously wanted to protect the deity of Christ, that he's 100% God. But the second reason, and here's why he switched, Apollinarius believed that if he could get rid of the full humanity of Jesus then he could get rid of sin. And this is very important to understand. Apollinarius believed that if he could get rid of the full humanity of Jesus, he could get rid of the human soul or the human spirit, then he could get rid of Jesus, and then Jesus could be a human. Now why? Why did he believe this? Because in the mind of Apollinarius, if you have something fully human, then you have something fully sinful. You have something ugly that needs to undergo the transformation. Apollinarius believe that anytime you have something that is fully human, completely human, then you have something that is fully sinful, completely sinful, something that's ugly. That's what he believed. He equated humanity, being a human being, with sin. 
And I think we do the same too. What Apollinarius failed to see is that there are three examples in Scripture of human beings who are completely human beings and they're without sin. Do you know what they are? Number one, they're Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. Number two, it's me and you for eternity when we get new glorified bodies and we will be absolutely, completely, fully human, but we will have no sin. And the third example is Jesus. See, but Apollinarius thought if you were fully human, made up of two parts, body and soul, or body and spirit, then you'd be sinful. So in his mind, if Jesus was fully human, then he would have sin. So Apollinarius taught that the spirit was removed, the soul was removed, the mind was removed, and the word of God was substituted so that it controlled Jesus. According to Apollinarius, Jesus just plopped down inside a human body but was not fully human. Apollinarius believed that Jesus, as God, just plopped down into human skin, flesh and blood. But Jesus did not put flesh on like a suit. That's what Apollinarius would have said. As if his deity just slipped some skin on. As if his body was just a wet suit. No, that's Apollinarian. Apollinarius said that to be fully human was ugly. It was sinful. So his idea of the incarnation was God with a wetsuit on, if you will, to protect him from the ugliness of humanity. In fact, someone said this at a conference last week, and this is the second thing that led me to be convinced that we need to go this route in this sermon in next week's. This is how current Apollinarianism is. Last week, an up-and-coming pastor who has written books and speaks at conferences and even went to the same seminary as me said this about Jesus. He said this, He graciously tucks his Shekinah, his glory, he graciously tucks his Shekinah in a skin suit to roll up next to me. Now, what he means is that Jesus took on human flesh, that he became like us. This guy is not a heretic at all. He's a gospel-centered pastor, brother in Christ, serving for the glory of the Lord. I respect him, and I know what he's saying I know what he means, but what he's saying is Apollinarian. To say that Jesus chucked his glory, his Shekinah, into a skin suit is not the best way to talk about the incarnation. Jesus did not tuck his glory into a skin suit. He shared in our flesh and blood. He partook of humanity. It's just not the best way to describe the incarnation. We can do better than that. A better way to say it is this. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures united in one person. There's a unity of these two natures, God and man, not God tucked into a skin suit. That definition does not unify the two natures. It keeps them separate but never brings them into a unity. It's just glory tucked into a skin suit sounds like Apollinarius. And it makes Jesus not fully human. And that means that whatever you are going through right now, whatever you're going through, that means that Jesus would not completely understand because he's not completely human. After all, according to that line of thinking, he only wore a skin suit for a while. He was not fully human and therefore could not be a faithful and merciful high priest. Paul and Aris believe that Jesus was 100% God, but he's only 50% human. He had the physical material part, the flesh and blood, but he lacked the immaterial part, the human spirit or soul. 
He believed that Jesus was the word become flesh, but not the word become human. And so after some d- debates, the theories of Apollinarius were rejected as heresy and not compatible with orthodox Christology. His views were first rejected by a number of bishops and pastors and leading synods, and then eventually by the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Now, I said all of that church history, one, because I love it, and two, because you need to be reminded of it, because it's important to talk about Christology. Why spend a few sermons talking about the incarnation of Jesus? Here's why. Because if Jesus is not fully human, then you have no hope. And if Jesus does not have a femur bone, then you can't be forgiven. And if Jesus does not have a rotator cuff, then you can't be redeemed. And if Jesus does not have saliva in his mouth, then you can't be saved. And if Jesus does not have an abdomen, then you can't be adopted. And if Jesus does not have ribs, then you can't be resurrected. And if Jesus does not have a human spirit, then you can't be spared from the wrath of a holy God. And if Jesus does not have a patella, a kneecap, then you can't sing, Jesus paid it all. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was and is just like us. And that means that he experienced every kind of emotion that we have. He was sad. He was lonely at times. He wasn't always chipper. He got his heart broken just like yours. He was let down by people. He experienced sadness and sorrow. And he didn't run and drink a glass of instant smile either. He cried. He hurts, and that's why he's a faithful and merciful high priest, as Hebrews 4.18 says. He's been where you are and experienced what you are going through because Jesus looks just like you. And because Jesus looks like you, because he was human, that means he feels like you. He has suffered like you. He knows what it is to have a broken heart. Do you have a broken heart this morning? Someone hurt you? Your heart grieving? Sadness? Jesus knows what it feels like to have his heart ripped out of his chest because he was and he is a human being. Are you suffering today? Are you overwhelmed with life? Do you have a broken heart today? Have you been betrayed by someone you love? Have you been abandoned? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has been there too Because he's human. Please understand this about Jesus. Jesus does not come to us in our suffering and say, you know what? You feel bad. What you need is a glass of instant smile. And God the Father certainly did not come to Jesus and offer him a glass of instant smile as he suffered. Jesus was like Marilyn, the homely girl in that episode of The Twilight Zone. Sometimes he wanted to cry. And he did cry. Because he was human. And he experienced heartache and betrayal and abandonment and rejection. And his best friends walked away from him when he needed them the most. And one of his best friends denied ever even knowing him. 
He had a real human soul, a real human spirit, a real human mind, a real human heart that got walked on. So Jesus knows what it is like to be a human being going through a very dark night of the soul. Jesus is acquainted with darkness. And because he has been to the dark places, he can offer you light in your darkness. The reason I want to remind you of the humanity of Jesus is because you will need it when you are in the dark place. When you are in the dark place, what you need most is a human savior. When your soul is vexed, when your heart is broken, when you feel like giving up on life, maybe even taking your life. So don't doubt in the dark what God has taught you in the light. Sure, you say, I know, I know, Pastor. Jesus was a human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've said it before too many times, honestly. But that is exactly what you need to know when you are suffering. You need to know that Jesus is human. The audience of the book of Hebrews was suffering greatly. And what does the preacher of Hebrews tell them two times in the span of a few verses? That Jesus looked just like them. That Jesus was human. And that's exactly what you're going to need when you suffer, when you are in the dark. You need to be reminded that you have a faithful and merciful high priest who knows exactly how you're feeling because he has been there. He has been to the dark places. He is acquainted with darkness, and he will help you. I was just praying to him this morning, saying, Jesus, what I'm going through, you know because you experienced it. Can you help me, please? You know what it's like. You've been there. Please help me. It brought comfort to my soul, and he'll do the same for you. Please understand that Jesus is not unaware of your pain. What you are going through right now, Jesus is fully aware. He has entered your pain, entered your sorrow, and that makes him a faithful and merciful high priest. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, You are truly amazing that you would leave your Father's glory to take on and to partake and to share in our flesh and blood so that we could be with you, Father. Clearly, animal sacrifice does not wash away sin. We needed a human being We needed the God-man to come. And we thank you that you live the life that we should lead, but we don't. We thank you that you died the death that we all deserve and that your Father raised you through the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead. Our hope rests in you. And so now, Jesus, we will sing about your life, death, and resurrection. We will sing now that you paid it all. Amen.